Hello, and welcome to Remember the Film, the podcast where we are all a little people, a silly people, greedy, barbarous, and cruel. I am joined, as always, by the pride of St. Louis, Josh Bradley. How are you today, Josh? Good. Hello. Hi. And we are joined again by the pride of wherever Hugo's from, Hugo Panay. How are you, Hugo? <laughs> uh, I'm doing good. Uh, very, very silly and little. <laughs> That's my mood. And we are joined today by a special guest, my best friend of 23 years and David Lean superfan, Matt Curran. Hi, Matt. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me on. My absolute pleasure, on. and Hugo and Josh will tolerate it, I suppose. <laughs> no, I'm excited. I'm pumped. No, this is cool. More friends. Getting more friends, more people. Always fun. Well, uh, so today we are talking about one of my all-time favorite directors and one of Matt's all-time favorite directors, David Lean. And more specifically, we're going to be diving into Lawrence of Arabia, which is, if not his most famous you know, one of his most famous it's, it's movies. His, it's his most famous, I think. Yeah, I would, I would say so. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's who we're talking about today. Uh, <clears throat> I, I, I don't have it in the notes, but I did want to ask real quick: uh, What is y'all's prior knowledge of David Lean? We'll go ahead and start with Hugo. Um, I he's a director that I, for some, I had always been putting off seeing his movies, but I, I was aware of a lot of them. Um, I was aware that he did some adaptations of of uh, Dickens. Uh, I, I, you know, I was aware about the fact that he started his career doing like smaller, uh, more. I won't call them independent because it's a different system, but smaller dramas, and then eventually his career led to him doing these gigantic epics. And and I think later on in his career, he also did a lot less movies than he used to do before in the forties and fifties. He started like spreading them idea, out a lot. <laughs> yeah, because I think he, I think in his mind, he felt like it with the next movie had to be bigger and bigger and bigger. And I know that's one of the things that people know about him. And but uh, before this week, I hadn't actually seen any of his movies. Uh, I was supposed to go watch uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, I think it was in uh, May 2020. They were supposed to have a screening of it in the city that I was living in, but alas. Uh, COVID happened. What happened? So, oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah, I had to move. I actually moved out of the city where I was studying because I, I there were no classes anymore. So I just came back home and did my university online. So I can I didn't get to watch it. And that was going to be my occasion to maybe get into also his other movies. And after that happened, I kind of put it off for a while. What about you, Josh? Until this week. Uh, <laughs> Grayson, I'm going to throw out a reference and see if you uh, know it as well. I, my first introduction to David Lean was the Unforgivable videos on YouTube in the early days of YouTube. Do you remember those? Unforgivable. Do you remember those? Okay, <laughs> yes, you do. Yes, I do. Uh, can't really repeat much of those videos now. No, they're pretty vulgar. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> anyone who's around in the early days of YouTube probably saw them. But there is a oblique and very out-of-place reference to David Lean movies in those uh viral YouTube videos where he references A Brief Encounter, Dr. Zhivago, and The Bridge in the River Kwai. Um, and so that, those are the first times I heard the names of those movies and the first times I'd heard David Lean's name before. Um, and I think to this day, those four plus Lawrence Arabia are the only four that I can really name that he's made. Uh, I, I think that... So for someone who made... Who wasn't as important to movies at the time and who made some... Uh, irrefutable all-time classics including some of the best movies ever made i don't feel like he has much of a reputation among the kids nowadays um just just but judging on you know who i see talked about like on on twitter and stuff like on film twitter and stuff i don't see his name come up as much as you know billy wilder 
or uh, you know Orson Welles or, or other guy or, or his contemporaries like that, Hitchcock. which is which is interesting. Hitchcock, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure why that is. Uh, I've I've seen Bridge in the River Kwai and I've seen Lawrence Arabia, but uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, he made some of the best movies ever made, but I, I don't I don't have much of a relationship with his work, and I guess uh, maybe he's lost a time in in some sense, but you know he'll he'll never be lost a time because the movies if- he made, but. I mean, yeah, what do you guys got? Yeah, if I had to take a stab at maybe why that is, I think it would probably have something to do with the fact that he just made – he made a lot fewer movies, right? He yeah. made movies over the course of – his first movie that he directed was in 42, In Which We Serve. And his last movie was in 84 with A Passage to India. So he had a 40-year career, and even in that time, he only made 16 movies. So, you know, it, he really has a small output in regards, especially to modern people like you guys have talked about Scorsese and Spielberg. Of course, they just crank them out every couple of years. So, you know, part of the reason I think might be that these movies stand alone for their own individual kind of greatness when you watch them. Right. And yes. and I think I think modern audiences probably don't necessarily connect those movies to Lawrence, or excuse me, to David Lean necessarily. Right. So I think that that could be why. Well, I, I agree because, like, like I said, I, I've at least known his name since I was in high school, and I don't think I knew he did Lawrence of Arabia until fairly recently. You know, I, I, I'm not sure who I thought made Lawrence of Arabia, but I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't connect his movies together like, like you just said. That's interesting. So, uh, for me, experience with David Lean goes back to childhood. Uh, my mom, one of her favorite movies was Doctor Zhivago, which I, I have the poster here. Uh, that was a gift from Matt. Uh, for Christmas. <laughs> Dr. Zhivago was uh, uh, one of my mom's absolute favorite movies. And so I watched that fairly young. I, I, you know, I, I wasn't fully paying attention, but I didn't really, really like, I wasn't fully appreciating the movie when I was a child. But because it was one of my mom's favorite movies, anytime it was on TV, she watched it again. So I got to see it many, many times over the years. And each time I watched it, I appreciated it more and more. However... I didn't know David Lean was the director, and as a child, I didn't really care who the directors of movies were. <laughs> so, uh, so I didn't really put together, you know, David Lean was one of my favorite directors until after having watched Lawrence of Arabia uh, and having watched Bridge on the River Kwai. And I'm like, you know what? This guy freaking hit after hit with this guy, you know? This guy so, can make a movie. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, you know. I think I, I think I really love this director, and I've seen other movies of his since then. And while I don't think that they are to the level of those three movies, Doctor Zhivago, Bridge on the River Kwai, and Lawrence of Arabia, I still think they're good movies for the most part, if not a little problematic with some of the uh, Dickens representations. But uh, <laughs> but the point is, he he became one of my favorite directors, and it, it's true. Like you know, I didn't know really know who he was until after I had decided I really wanted to become a film buff. Matt, you know, you're, you're like I said before, a David Lean super fan. What brought you into David Lean? Yeah, I think actually it was the first time I ever watched Lawrence, to be honest. Uh, so I, right after college, you know, right after college, of course, you have a lot more free time on your hands whenever you are not at work, right? I mean, a, a, assuming you don't have kids or anything like that. So, you know, I started watching more and more classic movies, right? And, you know, I think that um, I wanted to watch some of the big ones. So right before Lawrence, I watched Ben-Hur, for example, you know, and, you know, because it was like everybody knows about Ben-Hur. At at the very least, they know the chariot scene from Ben-Hur, right? So I watched that. And, you know, honestly, with that one, I was kind of like, eh, and, you know, maybe that's for a later 
episode if you ever if you ever have me back and want to talk about Ben Hur for some reason. Um, <laughs> I don't. But yeah, no, <laughs> no really. I don't blame you. Um, but yeah, I mean, so unless you want to talk about that scene in the context of the pod race in in the Phantom Pain in the Phantom Menace, the Phantom, Phantom Pain. Wow, <laughs> I also don't. <laughs> the Phantom the Phantom Pain might have been a uh, Freudian slip there, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, but so I think that I started watching Lawrence of Arabia in that context, and honestly, because of the fact that with Ben Hur, I was like, Hurr. I was like, oh, I don't know, I, I don't know if I'm going to like this movie. It's kind of an older sword and sandal type epic, and came away from it and was just like. Wow, totally blown away by this movie, you know, especially in comparison to what I had watched. So from there, I started watching other David Lean movies, and I was like, man, this, I love this guy. I love his movies. So, uh, as you can tell, Matt and I are big fans, uh, but who is David Lean? Uh, just some of the, uh, the big hits on him, some like, you know, information. Uh, David Lean won Best Director at the Oscars twice and was nominated seven times, which is tied for fourth all-time for director nominations, behind William Wyler with 12 nominations, Martin Scorsese and, uh, sorry, William Wyler at 12, Martin Scorsese and Billy Wilder with eight each, and then David Lean is tied with seven uh, with Steven Spielberg, Fred Zinneman, and Woody Allen. Uh, so, you know, he's in really good company in terms of directors. <laughs> Pardon my ignorance, but how the hell did William Wyler get nominated for Best Director 12 times? Not Fewer directors back movies? then. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I don't he, know. He, he made Ben-Hur, right? What else did he make? Anybody know off the top of their head? I, I, know, later in his, I know later in his career he made uh, Funny Girl, Barbara Streisand's debut film. Okay. okay. Um, Coincidentally, also with Omar Sharif, who is a frequent collaborator of David Lean's. <laughs> Stand by, uh, I'm going to look up William Wyler movies while you keep talking. Of course. It's actually kind of a thing that in in older, actual older movies, 40s, 50s, and 60s, a lot of the movies that maybe have a relevance in pop culture today weren't necessarily the ones that uh, were nominated for Oscars at the time. It's something that you see a lot. Uh, he actually did both. He did Roman Holiday and Wuthering Heights and Best Years of Our Lives, so like... Both so, so he you know, did some good important, movies. enduring movies, and you know, <laughs> Oscar movies at the time. Okay, so uh, part of my ignorance again, <laughs> but pro- but probably another scenario like we said with David Lean, right, where it's like movies that everybody knows those movies off the top of their head, but they don't necessarily know that it's William Wyler as the director. Yeah, especially compared to like a Hitchcock, who like you know his name was attached to everything. It's like no one would mistake a non-Hitchcock movie as a Hitchcock movie. So right, he doesn't have that brand, I guess. So, uh, six of David Lean's movies were nominated for Best Picture, including his first film in which we serve, Great Expectations, Bridge on the River Kwai, Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, and finally, A Passage to India. Uh, And Bridge on the River Kwai and Lawrence of Arabia were the two that actually won. So, it's like we were talking about earlier. It's a little surprising how little uh, David Lean is in the public awareness these days considering how prolific he was, even just with his, his few movies. Every movie was getting nominated for, you know, for, for Academy Awards and all, all the other awards as well. Uh, David Lean's movies have won 26 Oscars total, nominated 57 times. Uh, and you know, so it, it's just kind of baffling to me <laughs> how all of us, he was so under the radar for all of us at one point, and then one, you know, now, like, obviously, Matt and I have watched a ton, and I'm hoping that after you guys have watched Lawrence of Arabia here again and, and you watch Bridge on the River Kwai, that you'll you'll uh, go back and check out some of his other movies because they're really just well-made movies across the board. 
uh, and he's extremely underappreciated. Yeah, and just to add something there, Jeff, I think you know it's um, there. Are, there are a lot of directors who kind of are considered more like intellectual directors. Stanley Kubrick comes to mind in that instance, right? And I think that you know uh, David Lee never really saw himself that way. He saw himself as a good storyteller, right? So his his movies ne- aren't necessarily ones which you know you're going to come away from it and wonder about the existential you know uh, topics of the universe, right? But you are going to come from, come away from his movies and go, wow, like that was an excellent story, great characters, and just you know so many things that it's making me think about as I walk away. And and obviously we'll talk about this later, but shots that I remember you know vividly. Yeah, I think his shots, movies bro. come down to being a spectacle in a lot of ways. And and that's what you remember those movies for, rather than like you said, you know, the philosophical quandaries that are generated by the movies. They're not to say that there aren't some of those in in no, the there movies. definitely are. Yeah. Uh, what you got, Hugo? Uh, for me, with with these two movies that I watched this week, but Jean-Luc Quai and Lawrence of Arabia, both, I was actually surprised that what I got from them was much more of a sense of sense of even fun and adventure, uh, even though they portray some really dark. Uh, some really dark subject matter, but sometimes there's there's moments of levity, there's there's fun, there's excitement, there's spectacle, as you said. And I actually, in my head, they kind of brought me back when I first got into Kurosawa as a director, because I thought, oh, I'm going to watch these Kurosawa movie, movies, but they're going to be very serious, very uh, ponderous, and they're going to be philosophical. And they are, but but they're also adventurous, fun movies. Like, there's... There's an element, I think you connect David Lean, when you connect the docs throughout history, you connect David Lean more to the Spielbergs of the world than to, I don't know, the the Kubricks of the world. They're, they're more fun, exciting movies, yeah. that I'm, much more than I was expecting, for sure. Well, uh, so, uh, Matt and I wanted to talk about some of the themes that come up in David Lean's movies, and obviously we're going to talk about them in greater depth uh, when we're talking about Lawrence of Arabia here in just a moment. Uh but uh, so the first theme we, theme we wanted to talk about from David Lean is obsession. Uh, Matt, where where do you think that this theme comes through in his movies? I think it's it's many of his characters, and I would say at least one character in basically all of his movies. And when we say obsession, I think what we were trying to say there is basically his characters are obsess- obsessive in their determination, right? And even to the point where most of the time they can't ever admit defeat. You know, they they don't want to face themselves. They don't want to face that defeat and what that means for who they are, right? So, I mean, we'll we'll talk more about Lawrence, I suppose. But um, one big example, I think that all of us can talk about, because I think both of you got, or all three, four of us have seen Bridge on the River Kwai, is Nicholson, right? I mean, just the prime example of somebody who will not admit that his unit has been, been defeated, that his that he is a POW, you know, and follow, continues to follow that letter of the law. I think one example I wanted to uh, draw or analogy I wanted to draw, and it was actually pointed out by my wife. She said, you know, he's very similar to Javert from Les Mis, right? In the sense that he wants to follow the rule, the, follow the rules and follow the letter of the law to the T, no matter what, right? Like doesn't necessarily think of the larger context and what those actions mean. It's just, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what society says I should do. Therefore, I'm doing it, Right. And it does come up in other movies as well. Like, like you know, Bridge on the River Kwai is that, that obvious one. Kamarovsky in uh, Dr. Zhivago, very obsessive. Uh, both the main characters of Brief Encounter. You know, it, that movie's about 
uh, you know, an extramarital affair. So there's some obsession uh, in that as well. Um, so yeah, that's definitely one of the the main themes uh, that he deals with in his movies. And the, like you said, the unwillingness to admit defeat. Uh, another one we wanted to touch on was the savior complex. Uh, oh, that's going to come up huge in Lawrence of Arabia. It's like, <laughs> it's so in your face <laughs> in Lawrence of Arabia. But it is just something we wanted to mention that comes up in all of his movies. Dr. Zhivago is a, a doctor, so he's both literally a savior, but also he is constantly making efforts and decisions in his life that are frequently to his own detriment in the idea of helping bring other people up. Dr. Zhivago is a movie about uh, the uh, rise of communism in Russia. Uh, and Dr. Zhivago's character is well well off, wealthy, like we said, he's a doctor and all that. Uh, but he believes in the cause of bringing, being more fair and equal to everyone. While, and that means that he has to, he's going to lose a lot himself, but he's willing to do that, you know, it's a very complex story, and obviously I want you guys to watch that one a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, just if I could add about Jivago, Jeff, I think there's an element of he, you know, the savior complex comes through in that he almost wants to save Lara, the the main love interest, Julie Christie, the, the uh, blonde-haired, very attractive woman from that movie. You know, he almost wants to save her from her past and, and the other people that are in her life. Um, you know, not giving too much away, but basically Komarovsky is very interested in Lara. And so Zhivago almost comes across as wanting to save Lara from, you know, the pursuit of Komarovsky yeah. as well. Um, yeah, so Saber Complex. Uh, Matt, you wanted to talk about the close-ups? Yeah, and I think that this is something that we started to, my wife and I started to notice as we were re-watching these this week is the, the way that he films close-ups with characters. And again, it's in those moments where you know, he's trying to show that these characters are having to face who they truly are, right? They don't want to face that, right? They're afraid of their demons to a certain extent. And so, of course, you know, in, in um, I guess, you know, don't we're trying not to give away too much with these movies, right? But at the end of that, of uh, Bridge on the River Kwai, Nicholson has a moment where he's having to, fa to face who he is and, you know, what he's all about, what he's done. And I think that they do that by getting really close up in his face and you see that moment of realization, um, we can talk about really Lawrence well, later as well. It, it works really well. Um, something I've noticed as well uh, in the way that he switches from uh, v these very sweeping, gigantic vis vistas where the characters are tiny little dots into this magnificent shot. And at the same time, the movie also has these very intimate close-ups when there's either a strong emotional moment or, as you said, a character having to face his own failure or, or whatever it is. But he does a lot of contrast between, you know, gigantic operatic moments with just music and visuals and these more intimate close-up shots that, that I think work really well. Yeah, plugging one of his other movies that I don't, I don't think it sounds like you guys have seen. There's his final movie, A Passage to India from 1984. Um, one of the main characters is a woman who's grown up in a very kind of upper middle class background in Victorian England. And, you know, she's very, uh, she's a product of her time in the sense that as far as her sensuality, her sexuality, it's very repressed, right? And there's a moment in that movie where, you know, she's starting to realize she's having these feelings and she wants, wants more of that, but is also afraid of that and afraid to let that show. And so there's a pretty intense close up when she's in that moment and, and she can't deal with it, right? And you get that, that close up where you're realizing that's what she's going through. 
Um, Very good movie, by the way. A Passage to India. Highly recommend. <laughs> so uh, last two themes that I wanted to touch on uh, real quick. Self-destruction and criticism of larger power structures. The reason I'm mentioning these both back-to-back is because it's something I find so fascinating about David Lean's movies is uh, his ability to tell a story about something very personal, uh, very small, the effect on one person's life, their, the way they, they are destroying their own lives, but then also tell a, a grander-scale story about, you know, like the, like we're saying, the impact of these large power structures uh, and how those things intertwine. Uh, did you, I mean, obviously we're going to talk about Lawrence, but like Bridge on the River Kwai, you guys saw that. What, what did you think about self-destruction? You know, who jumps to mind in, in that regard? Well, Nicholson. Yeah. I think, yeah. <laughs> Nicholson, well, for sure. Well, I, I don't remember a ton of Bridge on the River Kwai, but I do remember what Nicholson does, like, towards the last moments of the movie, which is kind of um, a, a crisis of, like, whose side he's on, basically, kind of, or maybe not a crisis of whose side he's on, but, like, he, he you kind of question, like, what are you doing? What's, what's driving you to, to do this? And, like, where do your allegiances lie? And, like, are you brainwashed? What's going on? Like, I'm not spoiling anything by saying that, but, like, those are questions I was asking I was watching it, so... You know, um, I think what the the point you're making is like how how the individual's loyalties like, you know, affect the overall uh, structure of, of what's what's happening. And I certainly see that in Lawrence, like, you know, what we'll talk about a lot with Lawrence is like his identity crisis and like what that means on an individual level, but also on like a sociological level and that kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, I see that in both of those movies pretty clearly. So I, I'm assuming that's probably a larger theme he does. Well, yeah, and, and, and that's what I'm driving at is that like, this is a thing in like at least 50% of his movies, you know, at at a minimum where (laughs) the main characters are self-destructive and sometimes they're self-destructive because they're trying to do something good and it's, it's, it's causing harm on themselves. That's like more of the case with Dr. Zhivago, but then there's also uh, like in uh, a brief encounter, like that's an extramarital affair the whole movie is, uh, you know, I mean, this isn't a spoiler because it's set up at the very beginning. She, the, the the woman in the movie is basically narrating the tale of this extramarital affair to her husband. Uh, and, right. <laughs> and so, like, the whole – she's telling the whole story about how I have blown up our marriage, basically. <laughs> very self-destructive. Uh, but, yeah, so it, I, I think it's interesting the themes that directors bring from one movie to another, especially, like, you know, when we're talking about David Lean – uh, the beginning of his career, as Hugo alluded to earlier, his movies were very personal, very small, very small budget, small cast, on set, you know, that that sort of thing. Uh, but he's st- and then as he became more as he was given more money to make movies, <laughs> uh, the scale blew up, but he still brings those themes with him. Uh, Matt, did you have anything else you wanted to say on these themes? Yeah, well, with specific regard to what you just said, Jeff, it it is a function of the fact that he started working with, you know, at first he was working just within the British film industry at that time, right? He was not working within kind of the larger international Hollywood structure um, of the, you know, 40s and 50s. And so when he did start to work with more international productions, essentially what started happening is the British film industry started to contract and so he knew that in order to be able to make the movies he wanted to make, he had to go outside of it and had to start seeking Hollywood funding. As he did, he got more money. The production, he, you know, he then obviously was given more freedom to increase the size of the productions. But there still remained at his core that very like small tale filmmaker that always wanted to make those very intimate stories, right? And and I think to your point, you know, he's done a good job over his career 
I say that as if he's still alive. He did a great job over his career of, you know, keeping that smaller core. And I wonder if that change also allowed him to, because I'm not sure about a passage in India, to, to India, which I imagine has to do with, with Britain as well. Um, but both Bridger and the River Kwai and Lawrence Arabia, very critical of the British army, um, which I imagine in, in, you know, in the late 50s and early 60s isn't something that uh, was maybe as common from from a director who is British and who is one of the major British directors of all time. So I, I found that pretty interesting. I thought, you know, maybe I had, I had preconceived ideas because of when the movies were made, but I thought the point of view was going to be much more uh, pro-British and I won't say colonialist, but I, I was dreading some some feelings of pro-colonialism in the movies because the 50s and 60s are also the historical period when... Britain was starting to really lose all of its last colonies. So it it actually surprised me in that sense. It's a great call out, Hugo. And it is it is basically what I was going to say with this topic, which is four out of five of his larger and later epics are extremely critical of the British Empire. Um, Kwai, of, Kwai, of course, is of the army. Lawrence is, of course, of the army and the government. Um, Ryan's daughter is critical of the, the British occupation of Ireland, especially during the period of the Irish Revolution. And A Passage to India, yes, they take on topics of colonialism, the racism, the sexism present in those structures. So, you know, it, to your point, and, and yes, you're right, all pretty unique for an Englishman who was born in 1908, you know, and lived through the, his, his formative years of his adulthood were during the height of the British Empire in the 30s, right? So... And he's yeah. also a sir. I think he 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 does have knighthood. Yes. As well. mm-hmm. So it's yeah. Go ahead. These are all pe- these are all period pieces too, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he's he's you know he's making a movie about World War World War Two from the f- perspective of the fifties in the case of Bridge of the Requi, and you know so it's recent. It's yeah, a that's recent period piece yeah, basically. That's kind of the the daring thing is he's telling these stories about things that have happened so recently that you'd think that it would be a lot more upsetting to the people in the countries he's criticizing. Yeah, but, and I I didn't put together the, what like Hugo just said is like the time he was making these movies like the empire was kind of crumbling on a global scale at least you know what remained of it so that that is interesting that he was be able being able to reflect that as it was kind of happening in real time and kind of go back to the recent history and bring that perspective to it. That's really interesting actually. Well, and it's so cool he thinks of himself as a storyteller, right? But he is also telling these stories about people and to people who have very recently experienced these things. So like, or, or or at least he was attempting to. Uh, And in cases of Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago, uh, neither of those movies were able to be shown in the places they were about uh, for years after they were made, because like in Dr. Zhivago's case, uh, you know, obviously, <laughs> Russia didn't want. Uh, it, it was based on a Boris Pasternak uh, novel, Doctor Zhivago, uh, and uh, you know that book uh, was not. Uh, the book was banned. P- Pasternak uh, was spared. Uh, you know, by uh, Stalin because he thought he was such a. Uh, he calls him a, like a cloud person or something like that. Like he's just he's just such a, a whimsical guy. Just you know. Hmm. You can ignore him. He's Even harmless. <laughs> Surprise Stalin would like let that go. <laughs> yeah, but he did. And I mean, it's kind of like what happened with Tarkovsky as well. Yeah. What were you going to say, Matt? Yeah, the, 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 the Soviet government actually did arrest and imprison Pasternak's girlfriend um, during his writing and publishing of this book. So 
yeah, it, it wasn't completely uh, fault-free <laughs> yeah. or consequence-free, rather. But uh, so, but eventually, uh, Dr. Zhivago has been released in Russia and was well-received <laughs> in Russia. Uh, and it's actually really funny. In that movie, part of the premise of the movie is that Dr. Zhivago, in addition to being a doctor, is also a poet. And uh, his poems were not allowed to be read in Russia. Uh, you know, for some time. And in the in the course of the movie, you're getting the perspective of someone at the end of the story, and he's telling he's retelling this story and he's talking about how, well, now now you can read the poem. So it's kind of it kind of parallels what happened with Pasternak, who is a poet, and, <laughs> and uh his stuff wasn't allowed to be read in Soviet Russia. Uh go ahead, Josh. So Dr. Zavago also kind of is like a retelling afterwards. Yeah. As you said, a brief it's, encounter, it's, it's a brief told encounter in flashback. That. Yep. A brief encounter is that Doctor Zavago is that, and Lawrence Brady is also that. So that's also, I guess, something we can another talk theme about in the larger <laughs> David Lean. Well, especially because he's making these movies based on real events. Like he he does have like a sense of history, and like just the narrative conceit of the movie is the fact that he is having someone using the frame device of like telling the story within the movie is like also kind of like hanging a lantern the fact that you are telling history here, and like uh, the fact that the whole thing's told in flashback is is interesting. Yeah. I, I, I can't stress enough, guys. you got to watch Dr. Zhivago. So good. Okay. Uh, but as far as Lawrence of Arabia, like we were saying, it's the same sort of deal uh, uh, with that. You know, the movie was uh, obviously a, largely about, uh, you know, the Arab nations. <laughs> and uh, though, even though, I mean, we'll talk about this more. They, they were involved in the production. It was, you know, largely shot on location. Uh, when the movie was released, it was not allowed to like be shown in most of the Arab nations. We'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that later, but it's Except interesting. Egypt, that, right? Yeah. It was allowed to show, be shown in Egypt, uh, which, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get into the reasons why here later. But the point that I, I wanted to get at with that is that he's telling these stories. Uh, it's, it's kind of like he, he views himself as just a storyteller, but he's telling these bold stories that could potentially get him a lot of flack. And he's like, you know, yeah, I mean he's he's a storyteller, but he is certainly taking a side. Yeah, like he he has a perspective. He's not just a you know neutral observer. Um, the other things I wanted to talk about, and we'll get into the actual stuff for Lawrence Arabia. Just some characteristics I'm kind of going to rattle off, but you know all of his movies have, uh, I shouldn't say all, the latter half of his career have epic scores. the The music is grandiose and memorable uh, for all of them. Uh, so I wanted to mention that the cinematography Hugo's already alluded to, uh, we have large, you know, wide shots where the focus is very, very tiny. And you see that not just in, you know, Lawrence Arabia, a lot in Lawrence Arabia, but that is another thing that carries, uh, it happens in Dr. Zhivago. Matt, you had another example when we were talking. Every one of his later epic movies that, I mean, the cinematography in Ryan's daughter, for example, from 1970, is beautiful. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen, and it's the Irish countryside and the Irish. The, the basically, if you've seen Star Wars: The Last Jedi, and you've seen <laughs> the uh, the Temple Island where you know Luke goes to, that's all Ireland, right? And so it all looks like that. Yeah, there you go. Um, so anyway, yeah, I mean, again, I would say it for every one of his later movies, but that is definitely the case. Okay, so. Uh... We've talked about the sweeping landscapes. Uh, and then the other thing, and like this, David Lean's not the first person to do this, but it is a, a thing that he uses often and well, and that is obscuring 
people's faces, whether it be with lighting or with actual like covers, like he covers their face with dirt or covers their face with fabric or it's, he, he loves to do shots where you, all you get is the eyes and, uh, brilliantly he casts people with very striking eyes for for these movies yeah peter o'toole man (laughs) um matt you wanted to talk about scene transitions yeah it's one of the things that david lean is probably most known or most yeah no um remembered for uh josh for the podcast listeners who don't see the video josh just did an imitation of the match cut in lawrence which of course is Probably one of the most famous scene transitions in all of film history. Among them, um, sure. Yeah. But I think one big thing that, um, or two major things come to mind with scene transitions with David Lee. Number one is he he's very good about direct cuts that often overlay sound. So it's really his use of sound that is the most um, notable about his scene transitions. For example, he'll have um, instances where it's two scenes that are coming together and, you know, he'll use the same sound for sound effects that are happening on both shots. So, for example, in um, Bridge on the River, I mean, excuse me, Dr. Zhivago, there is a scene where the doctor has, one of the doctors that's with Zhivago has a tool, Some I don't remember what it is, it's some kind of tool that they use in their, brass tool that they use in their profession. And he throws it down onto a metal table and it goes clink, and when it does that, it cuts to another scene where you're seeing the, like, railway, two railway cars decoupling from each other and when they do that it goes clink right so he's using the clink from the uh the brass tool to be the same sound effect and it's really just a great way to tie those two scenes together so auditory continuity i love that yep so he does that a lot and then another big one is three-part cuts right so the a, a great example of this is in bridge on the river kwai um the doctor clipton he says something about like oh are they both going mad he says or am i going mad or is it the sun? And he looks up at the sun and and Lean cuts to a shot of just the sun. That's it. And all of a sudden, William Holden, from a totally different scene, from hundreds of miles away, comes walking into frame and covers up the sun, right? So it's awesome stuff like that where they bridge two scenes together with, with a visual that applies to both scenes. So, yeah. A lot. I mean, we could keep talking for hours about this, Jeff, but uh, I'm sure we don't want to spend the whole time talking about scene transitions. Probably not. <laughs> But the, the last thing I wanted to talk about was uh, just David Lean's legacy. We talked touched on this earlier that it's surprising how little we actually think about his his legacy in films, considering that you know he's you know so prolific. Uh, but David Lean has been referenced as influential by dozens of directors and authors, including Steven Spielberg, and you can see that pretty obviously in Indiana Jones. Uh, with a lot of the way things are shot in that in comparison to how things are shot in Lawrence of Arabia. George Lucas with Star Wars, same deal. Tatooine, Lawrence of Arabia, all over that. <laughs> uh, Stanley Kubrick uh, said that David Lean was very influential. And then I thought Hugo would like to know, Frank Herbert, the author of Dune, uh, referenced David Lean as extremely influential. It, yeah, uh, my letterbox review for Lawrence of Arabia was, oh, they finally made a good Dune adaptation. Because it, <laughs> it's ridiculously similar the way the story is set up it i'm sure herbert had the story because the movie wasn't made yet because they came out the same year actually it's like 65 but um i'm sure herbert had t lawrence in mind uh when he was writing dune to some extent uh but yeah so uh matt you had a quote 
or maybe I don't know if you have it, you have it written down, but you had told me there was a, a quote from Spielberg about David Lean's uh, influence. Um, I have. Yes, I do have one. And I also have one from Martin Scorsese. Um, so, yeah, the, I mean, Steven Spielberg quotes. You, you can find a bajillion videos all over YouTube of interviews that Spielberg has given talking about the influence of David Lean and his movies on his own filmmaking. Um, you know, for example, at one point he said, when I first met Lean, for me, it was like meeting my guru, right? Because it was one of the most influential uh, things in his career. But so there's an interesting quote, though, from Scorsese from 2012. So for those who don't know, Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg were actually very influential and, and played a big role in the restoration of Lawrence of Arabia in 1989. Um, it had gone, the movie had gone through a lot of cuts over the years because, you know, some people didn't like how long it was. So they were chopping it to bits. You know, they weren't necessarily taking great care of the film. And so it had just been mangled over the years. So in 1989, um, they embarked on a pretty big restoration project and they restored it to its original length. And that whole, a lot of that process was actually overseen by Steven Spielberg and Scorsese both. Um, so, you know, they really have contributed a lot to the legacy of his films. Uh, the Scorsese quote I have is pretty long, um, but basically he's just, you know, talking about how he, he really admires the film Lawrence of Arabia, especially because of the fact, like we said earlier, that it does cover very large, um, it has a large scale, it has large topics, large structures that it's talking about, but also you see the core of this, you know, personal story about Lawrence himself. So I won't read it. It's way too long to read, but, um, but it is super interesting. The reason I wanted to bring it up is just because uh, we talk about, we don't, we don't know much about David Lean. We don't talk about him directly, but the directors we love, love David Lean. And so that's his legacy. We see the through line from David Lean to Steven Spielberg to all the directors who've been inspired by Steven Spielberg. What, what do you got, Josh? I don't know if we've said it yet, but I think Spielberg said that Lawrence of Arabia is, Lawrence of Arabia is his favorite movie and what inspired him to become a filmmaker. Have we said that yet? Uh, we hadn't said that, no. But yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I didn't know about this. I, I didn't know that Spielberg would would talk about David Lean specifically, but I mentioned him before because because I felt it like I it, if you've seen the Indiana Jones movies as many times as I have, which is probably too many. Um, there are many instances during Lawrence of Arabia where I said, oh, this they redid this act, this exact same shot. The final shot of of um, the third movie, Last Crusade, is essentially one of the one of the beautiful shots with the sunset in Lawrence of Arabia. It's there it's horses and here it's camels, but it's basically the same shot. And in the early part of the movie, where he hasn't met the Arabs yet, and after the well scene, he's alone in the desert, there's a lot of sweeping vistas where you only see these rocky mountains and there's the score playing. Raiders of the Lost Ark has mo several different moments of those that are exactly the same. It's exactly the same style of filmmaking, and I can definitely see where the inspiration came from. Yeah, and like I mean, there are some more obvious ones like that, like Spielberg and you know George Lucas, Stanley Kubrick, Sergei Leone, yeah. like those guys very clearly uh, mm -hmm. uh, are leaning on lean, for lack of a better phrase. But also like um, hey. on, on, hey. on his Wikipedia page, there are more modern directors that you may not associate with these that also like cite David Lean, like uh, John Woo and Joe Wright and Christopher mm -hmm. Nolan, which that kind of makes sense, well, I guess. But yeah, like yeah. <laughs> yeah, so everybody from like the the class of like Spielberg and George Lucas to you know. Nolan and Joe Wright are all uh, citing him as an influence. Yeah, so, you know, it, it gives me comfort as a David Lean fan to know that, like, even if the general public 
forgets David Lean's name entirely, the people who are making films won't. And, and you know, I, I think that's pretty special. Uh, on a lighter note, we also wanted to talk about the uh, parody uh, influences. Uh, like, it, you would be surprised just how often you've seen David Lean being spoofed, probably. But, like, Spaceballs spoofed Bridge on the River Kwai pretty obviously. <laughs> and Lawrence. And Lawrence as well. Very heavily, uh, yep. And then, of course, countless animated shows like Family Guy, American Dad, and The Simpsons. There's a great clip that Matt showed me from The Simpsons where Homer is walking in the desert and he's making up a song to the score of Lawrence of Arabia. And it, it's really, really funny. Go ahead, Josh. Also, I love the Family Guy bit where, like, they're sh- they're, the bit is they're showing Lawrence of Arabia in its original aspect ratio on TV. And Stu and Brian are watching it. And it's just like this little tiny strip. It's a sliver. I can't see anything yeah. because it's such an amazingly widescreen movie. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it, it's pretty important. Well, let's get into our the, the actual topic, our, our film to remember, Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, some boilerplate stuff. I'll just rattle it off real quick. It was released on December 11th, 1962, directed by David Lean. Duh. Uh, it was based on T.E. Lawrence's autobiography, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which... This is what I thought was funny about this was T.E. Lawrence's brother, A.W. Lawrence, sold the rights for this book for 25,000 British pounds, uh, which, hmm. you know, is well, not nothing. You know, but with inflation, uh, yeah, <laughs> would have been quite a, quite a but sum. but not but not a ridiculous. It's like, yeah, it's like 100 grand, basically. <laughs> but then yeah. uh, he went on a campaign decrying the accuracy of the movie, like saying that it didn't represent his brother accurately at all and all that. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I think it's because this movie went on to be a huge success. <laughs> Should have gotten points in the back end, AW. <laughs> yeah, I, I told Jeff about this the other day, but basically, you know, it, AW, they, there was a point made by the people who served with T.E. Lawrence in Arabia. And they said, you know, well, AW didn't serve with this guy here, right? Like, he, it may not reflect the T.E. Lawrence that, that his brother knew in little suburban England, but it absolutely reflected the T.E. Lawrence that we all knew and served with here in Arabia. You know that, So it's interesting, the dichotomy there, that he would think that, well, he was my brother, so I know everything about him. Uh, well, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah, another thing I read about the movie was that even though there are some historical inaccuracies, as there are in every you know, biograph- biopic or movie based on real life, it, it apparently really does capture the essence of the person. And and the person T. Lawrence as he was in that period of his life, so I mean I think at that it does a really good job. And you know, I don't know what the motive behind the brother getting mad at the movie was, but maybe I don't. Like I said, right. I, I, I'm I'm voice. hypothesizing there. I think he's he's grumpy that the the movie made so much money because I think it might be the budget of the movie there, yeah. was 15 million, which was absolutely huge. Uh, adjusted for inflation, that's a 132 million dollar budget. So like we're talking a Marvel movie here. <laughs> a small Marvel movie, a small without movie. C- without CGI though, right? Yeah, without yeah, you're without not paying CGI. for the CGI. Yeah, but the movie went on to gross forty five million three hundred six thousand four hundred twenty five in the U S. and Canada, and worldwide it made sixty nine million nine hundred ninety five thousand forty seven dollars. Thanks uh, for getting the exact figures. Roughly adjusted <laughs> for inflation, six hundred ten million dollars, and uh, wow, yeah, and AW got twenty five thousand pounds for the story. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, the movie was nominated for 10 Oscars. It won seven for Best Picture, uh, Best Director, Best Cinematography, Art Direction, and Set Decoration. Best Sound, Best Film Editing, 
best score. And then the no- ones that it was nomin- nominated for but didn't win, best actor for Peter O'Toole, best actor in a supporting role for Omar Sharif, and best writing screenplay based on material from another medium. By the uh, way, maybe one of the worst Oscar snubs of all time, Peter O'Toole not winning best actor for this movie. Uh, Matt I wanted to talk about this. Don't, so. yeah, yeah, don't, don't tell me that you're into Peter, uh, I was going to say Peter Finch. Don't tell me you're into Gregory Peck's portrayal of Atticus Finch. Atticus Finch. Because, At- look, Atticus Finch is absolutely a massively important character to culture in general, but that performance by Gregory Peck, pretty flat. I don't know. I just pulled up the Oscars and like I'm I'm looking at the best actor category. It's a it's a stat category of Gregory Peck, Burt Lancaster, Jack Lemon, and Marcello Mas. Uh, Marcello Mastroianni. Thank you. Uh, icon of uh, of Fellini. Yeah. Um, that's just a tough category, man. That's that's five five bangers. But I don't know. I think Gregory Peck is one of the most is among the more iconic performances of the 20th century. So tough. But is that because cool. of the performance or is that because of the character? What's the difference? I think his performance elevated the character, and the character also probably elevated the performance a little bit, a little bit. True, but I also think about the context in which it came out, right? Like, that we're talking 62, the height of the civil rights movement, you know, and especially for that book, it had just come out um, and was just a, you know, rip-roaring uh, success right right when it came out, right? So it's, they. I feel like they were probably capturing the zeitgeist at the time much more so than T. Lawrence was. Yeah, it was definitely, yeah, it's definitely a movie and performance that was um, more relevant to the exact moment where it came out than this movie was, maybe. Especially in the US. I mean, I know it's not everything in terms of winning an Oscar, but I do agree with Matt that the range that uh, Peter O'Toole has to do with Lawrence is much more significant than the range that Gregory Peck had to do as Atticus Finch. And I know that's, like I said, that's not everything uh, for an Oscar, but... Uh, you know, I, I, I kind of agree with Matt, at least based between those two uh, performances. I mean, to your point, Gregory Peck isn't actually in To Kill a Mockingbird very much. He's yeah. maybe even a supporting actor in that, to be honest. <laughs> Compared to, you know, T.E. Lawrence, who's in nearly every frame of a four-hour movie. The last thing on the boilerplate stuff, just wanted to go through all the lists that indicate why this movie is great and important and you should watch it. Uh, AFI Top 100, it is number seven on the 2007 list. On Sight and Sound Director's Poll, number four, IMDb Top 250, it's 102, Letterboxd 250, 117, which would parallel our idea that the general public isn't watching these movies as much as they should. (laughs) Criminally Um, low. (laughs) And then uh, the British Film Institute, Top 100 British Films of All Time, uh, number three, David Lean has seven films on the list and four of the top 11 on that list. So, you know, as far as British directors go, David Lean's doing okay. <laughs> Four top 11, you said? Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> I mean, that's for British films. So, you know, take take that for what it is. It's one country, but uh, still. Uh, hey, hey. What, a lot of, what are you saying? A lot of great British films. I'm just saying, you know. Still impressive. Still pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, so we're not going to talk. We're not going to go, like, point by point through the plot of this movie. Uh, well, one, because, because it's four, four hours, hours long. long. So, <laughs> so we're definitely not doing that. Uh, but just as interesting as the actual content of the movie, to me, is the production and some of the stuff surrounding the production of the movie. Uh, it was shot on location in Jordan for basically six months. And then Sam Spiegel was concerned that they were going wildly over budget, which not a huge surprise. 
and they were behind schedule. So the production was pulled out of Jordan and went to Spain for a few more months. And then they realized they still needed to shoot more deserts. So they went to Morocco, which I guess is cheaper than Jordan. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but uh, that is something that's emblematic of filmmaking at this time is people were shooting on location. And that is something I think is missing from modern movies. Uh, they will frequently do things on set that I, I think, well, you know, gosh, if you had, I mean, it would cost a lot more, obviously, but if this was done. Not necessarily. I, it, it's an, here's another thing, especially on, in big, high, high, like big budget movies. A lot of the time shooting on location is just more inconvenient, but it would not necessarily cost more. Cause like CGI is extremely expensive, especially at the level of fidelity that it's achieving right now. But it's a lot more of a logistical nightmare, to your point. Yeah, I think it's more of a choice based on... Uh, and maybe it's George Lucas's fault uh, with his career trajectory, but it it is very much more about convenience than cost. I don't think the cost would be massively uh, larger or smaller. Uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, the you know while they were filming in Jordan, they were... that. The Jordan Jordanese government. I don't, I don't know if that's the correct Jordanian Jordanian government. Jordanian government. Thank you. The Jordanian government was very involved in the production. Uh, they used actual Jordanian soldiers as extras in the movie, uh, and they also used the Jordanian Air Force uh, aircraft to fly out to locations uh, uh, for filming. And the reason I think that's so important is, well, I guess I should say this other thing first. Uh, King Hussein of Jordan frequently visited the recording sessions and actually ended up marrying Antoinette Gardner, who was working as a secretarial assistant on the movie. Uh, after being married, she changed her name to Princess Muna al-Hussein and eventually gave birth to the now King of Jor Jordan, Abdullah II. Uh, so uh, this, that, I mean, that's how, how much the King of Jordan was involved with this production. Like he was, he, he found a way. <laughs> he got involved. The King of Jordan, by the way, at that time, was a descendant of the same family, like Prince Faisal, and the same family that was actually the subjects of this movie, right? So a lot of ties to it, and a lot of familial investment in making sure this was a good movie, not only for that purpose, but also, of course, for tourism purposes. Which brings me to the point we had mentioned earlier, that despite being that involved in the production of the movie, after seeing a cut of the movie... Uh, King Hussein decided the movie would not be shown in Jordan because he felt the depiction of Arab culture was disrespectful. Uh, in fact, Egypt was the only Arab nation to release the film to the public after President Nasser endorsed the movie, saying he appreciated the depiction of Arab nationalism. So, uh, I mean, what do you guys think about the depiction of Arab culture? It's it's a difficult subject because it, it, it certainly... Well, it's hard to talk about this because because I, I can't point to more modern movies that have portrayed Arab culture in a more accurate uh, or, you know, more respectful way because it's one of the least represented cultures on film. And um, I certainly think that uh, for the time, regardless of what the results are, regardless of, you know, the, the blackface that we do see in the film... Um, the, the intention of the people making it is to tell this uh, important story where, uh, you know, the Arab people were trying to create their own independence, regardless of, you know, the, the colonialists, like first they were colonized by the Ottomans or the Turks, and they then they would, after World War One they would be colonized by, you know, either the British or the French. 
but it 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 is a story about essentially the Arab people trying to find their own freedom, even though it is told from the point of view of of the white savior character, which it you know seen with today's sensibility is certainly it does have some problematic elements, it, it, which is almost impossible to escape with any movie doing a, something historical about this in the sixties. Um, but I think the intention of the people making the movie is is to show Arab culture in a positive light. Or at least an accurate light to their eyes. It's certainly more sympathetic to Arab people than I would think most movies of the time yes. would have been. Um, I think it's a little critical of like the tribalism between the Arab nations, but it's I, I guess it's less critical and more acknowledging that it doesn't understand the tribalism. And um, I mean, that's at least Lawrence's thing is he kind of doesn't get it, but we can talk more about that later. But ultimately, yeah, I mean, I think like the Arab people in the movie expect him to uh, look down on them and expect the British to look down on them. But he doesn't. Uh, our, our main character, point of view character, certainly does not. Uh, certainly respects them, um, even if the other British officers don't. Uh, I think like the movie is on his side, though, not theirs. Yeah. In, in their view of the Arab people. Matt, you had, you had your finger up. What do you, what do you got? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that for this movie is a good example of it. And, and even some of Lean's other films, um, his there are problematic portrayals, especially like from kind of the, the more modern sensibilities of things. Um, they never come across to me, though, as like purposely exploitative of stereotypes, right? They, they come across to me more of just just as a function of this is how, you know, stories were told in the 50s and 60s about other cultures, right? And, and, and like, for example, it doesn't come across the same way that, um, I was about to say Mickey Rooney. Is that right? Yeah. Mickey Rooney's character in Breakfast at Tiffany's come across, yeah. right? It's nothing uh, close to that. Yeah. It's not meant to, um, they're not using stereotype for comedy. Caricature. <laughs> yeah. Or caricature, like Josh yeah. just said. Yeah. It, it comes across more as, you know, look, they just made a choice that, hey, we're going to have a white person play Prince Faisal, right? Well, and I, and <laughs> not a great choice, but it is the that, choice they made. That's went the thing with. that's, you know, my, my biggest issue is like, I don't know why that decision was made. I mean, I know that obviously David Lean and Alec Guinness worked together on a bunch of movies, basically all of David Lean's movies, not quite all of them, but a lot. Uh, and so I don't know how much of it was that he just wanted to have Alec Guinness uh, in this important role in the movie and how much of it was just that, you know, was, was like trying to make a decision like, you know, I don't know. I, I, to their credit, they said that people like you know people who were interacting with Alec Guinness on set uh, would actually confuse who and who had known King Faisal would be like, wow, you know, you they really did nail the appearance uh, of him. But to what like what's the purpose of that? I I, I want to know why they didn't just cast uh, an Arab actor in the role. I just I just think that's Faisal. what happens in 1960s when you're making a movie. Yeah, I just think that's the the wh- how movies are made at the time. I just don't think there's a there's I don't think there's that much I don't think there's that much thought behind it uh, as we might expect there to be. It's well, just, and that's what I was thinking too, Hugo. Like but is. then you also look at David Lean pushed for Omar Sharif to have this role in the movie. He, you know, yeah. I was gonna say like how many Arab actors do they have available to them, but they kind of undercut that point by having Omar Sharif. Yeah, exactly. So who they purposely sought out because they wanted an Arab actor for that role, right? And and even later in Lean's career for a passage to India, 
you know, they people were telling him, oh, just use just use some random actor for the main character. And the main character is an Indian. And he said, no, like there I have an Indian actor in mind that I really want to use him. And it was his first, you know, international film that he kind of got exposure to. So now obviously not saying that, you know, oh, look at David Lean. Didn't he do such a great job of furthering these people's careers? No, I guess all I'm trying to say is like, I think to what Hugo said, it it comes across to me as just something where it's like, well, we just don't see it as a big deal if we just have whoever play whoever. Yeah. I mean, the, in the pantheon of brown face and black face performances, these are among the more respectful ones. Like I said, it's not caricature. And like, you can go back and find some a lot uglier versions of this. You sure can. Even in David Lean's own movies, to yeah. be honest, because the Oliver Twist one is, is pretty egregious. I want to mention real quick that I, th- I think part of the reason this was allowed in Egypt is because Omar Sharif was a big star in Egypt, yes. his home country. So, yeah, they said, yeah, the depiction of Arabs was good, but also, like, Omar Sharif was in it. So, like, they're going to show the movie in Egypt. Yeah. So. But also, and... also politically, just, I know I'm going into a politics corner, but Nasser, the, the leader of Egypt, was trying to open Egypt up to the West uh, in both culturally and politically and economically. So I think him, uh, what he was more open than other Arab leaders to western culture coming into this country just well that's hugo's politics corner <laughs> hugo's <laughs> politics corner uh, we should make that a permanent segment <laughs> um put a okay. banner up and everything so uh another just fun fact from the production uh they were shot in the desert duh uh so they had to truck in uh, 2400 gallons of water for the production every day uh and they also Damn. In the beginning of the production, they were using paper cups for drinking, you know, which is a standard practice on on the film sets. But uh, being in the desert, the paper cups kept getting blown out into the into the shots, which you know that's annoying enough that you've now got these paper cups in your shot. But Matt pointed out the real issue with that was that after the cups were in the shot, someone had to go get the cups, and that meant putting footprints in the sand, which would ruin the shot. So <laughs> they ended up having to buy ceramic mugs for everybody to drink out of for the entire production. <laughs> we'll just get rid of the cups and posts. It'll be fine. <laughs> Edit the cups out and posts, just like in uh, Game of Thrones. <laughs> uh, but uh, the last thing uh, from the production Matt wanted to mention was the cameras and film used. And I'm just going to let Matt go on that. Yeah, yeah. So with the cameras and the film, so obviously they're in the middle of the Arabian deserts, right? So uh, pretty hot. <laughs> and so... As that was happening, so basically, whenever they first started filming, they were realizing that the the it was so hot that it was actually warping the film as they were shooting it. So, like you know, they would shoot it, and literally within minutes, it would start to warp. So they said, "Well, obviously, we can't have that." So they, in order to prevent that, they did two things. Number one, they wrapped the cameras in wet cloth, like wet towels, basically, and they would just be constantly changing these wet towels out. And then, so that was to keep the camera cool. But then with the film. They actually would have to have refrigerated trucks there, you know, just sitting there ready to like, you know, collect the film because they would take it, take it out of the camera, bring it right to the truck. Right. So it's like just the crazy things that you don't have to worry about in a studio that when you're on location in the middle of the desert, you got to make these other accommodations. And I think uh, according to Ebert, this was one of the last movies that was shot like actually on 70 millimeter film as opposed to. Most movies at the time, you'd shoot on 35mm and they would blow it up to 70mm print. This is actually mm-hmm. shot on 70mm, which I guess is rare. Yeah, David Lean was very um, adamant about that. And even in his continuing movies after Lawrence, he wanted to do that. Zhivago is a notable example where the producer made him shoot on 35mm and then blow it up later. So, yeah, great point. 
Um, okay, so let's get into just some general discussion about the the movie. Uh, what did you guys think? I, I obviously Matt and I are very high on it, uh, so I'll, I'll go ahead and start with uh, we'll start with Hugo. I I thought it was great. I it's a magnificent achievement in film, and I I really wish I saw this in a theater. Uh, I'm I'm kind of a little upset that I didn't get to go last year because I feel like it would have been such an incredible uh, experience. Um, Because I have seen some of these classic, very long movies in theaters. I managed to track them down. Like, I don't know, uh, Apocalypse Now, for example, is a movie that I managed to see. And the impression that 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 movie left me with was stronger, I think, because of that in many ways. Um, I think I I still appreciated the the beauty and the the gigantic scope of, especially of the shots in the film. And, and, And I love how it's not afraid of its runtime. I, I, I really like how, uh, yes, now we're going to linger on this wide shot for a minute and nothing's going to happen. You're just going to see these tiny dots that are camels down there. Um, I think it adds to the, to kind of the sense of immersion that you have in the film, it, it, in this world, in this part of the world that, you know, I, I think most people who've seen this maybe have never been to and, and can hardly imagine outside of just images that you see. Um, I, I do think though the the scope and the grandeur was what impressed me the most. While the personal story, I think, because the movie is so long, it it's it's not as easy, especially seeing it at home, to 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 you know to keep your attention for the whole runtime. And you kind of sometimes I was like, oh, maybe this conversation I'm not as interested in this bit as I was 15 minutes ago when they were just walking through a desert. And I I do think the quiet moments in the film are my favorite. Um, but again, this is one of those movies that seeing it the first time is kind of over- overwhelming, at least story-wise, in in terms of yeah the character interactions and all that stuff. Um, but I think seeing it again, this movie will get better and better every time because once you know the scope and you know what to expect in terms of the larger narrative of the film, I think you can concentrate on characters a bit more. And well, and you know, and I think each time you watch it, you'll be able to appreciate you know you can focus on the characters the next time yes or you can focus on the imagery like if you once you've internalized the story and the characters and all that Mm -hmm. you can start to appreciate the actual imagery and the shots even more and the cuts oh and the cuts yeah which you know i've seen this movie a a few times now and i like hearing matt talk about the cuts i'm like yeah that is really cool (laughs) i (laughs) it's another thing that i haven't i haven't fully appreciated yet that was uh, for sure something that I did notice, though, because uh, th- there's one in particular that I remember, which is uh, when they first meet the leader of the other group of Arabs when they've first crossed the desert. Anthony and Quinn. he said, uh, you're going to fight in and he says the location of a place and it instantly jump cuts to this camp. And there's there's thousands of people on screen and tents. And I thought that was it really impressed me. And there's several moments of this. Uh, throughout and there's the a, uh, in that scene, there's a big drum hit when that yes, happens too, right? Like yeah, in the music, he says, dine, he says, dine with me in Wadi Rum. Boom. Yes. And you're all of a sudden you have the it's wide fun. shot. Like you said. Yeah. It's fantastic. And yeah, the, the sound design and the music are just magnificent. It's, it's hard to overstate how great that score is. Cause you hear it throughout the movie with different, you know, you know, sometimes it's a little faster. Sometimes it's a little uh, smaller with inter- instrument that don't make it feel as grandiose. Sometimes it's the full booming orchestra, but you hear it throughout the movie several different times and it always works. It always adds a different effect. Yeah. It's, when it, it's when it great. swells up 
Like, I honestly, I feel it swelling up inside oh, yeah. me. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Josh, what did, what did you think of the movie? Uh, I thought it was great. Uh, I really liked it a lot. Uh, I, I kind of agree with Hugo that I wish I could have seen it on a big screen, and I look forward to watching it more. To uh, reflect both of your points, Hugo, uh, you said that as you watch it more, you, you're, you're sure that you'll be able to pick up more stuff. I, I rewatched the first, like, ten minutes after I finished it, and, like, the people it opens with uh Lawrence's funeral basically not to give anything away because it's the opening scene but like everyone we meet in that opening scene is someone that we'll meet later on I didn't realize that the first time I watched it and like the second yeah, time I watched uh, it I'm like oh it's that guy oh it's that guy oh it's that guy um everyone we meet for telling in that me scene. <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't know that <laughs> exactly yeah I, I even after finishing it I I remember that opening scene and had no idea that that was like Alan B and the, and the reporter and, and everyone. Yeah. And the guy he shakes hands with in Damascus. The guy he shakes hands with yep. in Damascus. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> who is and, this? Who? Well, I guess we're not in the spoiler section yet. So I won't go. go ahead. <laughs> uh, and the other thing that Hugo said was that he wished he could have seen it on the big screen. I, I agree. Um, I'm going to pull from uh, Roger Ebert's review here from, I, I guess he was talking about the movie because it was released on like a, a, a new version of the video or DVD or something. I think it's the one that Matt has on his shelf. <laughs> Probably. Uh, to quote Ebert, as for Lawrence, after its glorious re-release in 70 millimeter in 1989, it has returned again to video where it crouches inside its box like a tall man in a low room. You can view it on video and get an idea of its story and a hint of its majesty, but to get the feeling of Lean's masterpiece, you need to somehow, somewhere, see it in 70 millimeter on a big screen. This experience is on the short list of things that must be done during the lifetime of every lover of film. And uh, I certainly get that. I-, I watch this in chunks, partially on my big 78-inch TV, but also at times on my iPad. 78? Which is, yes, which Damn. is not not the way you want to watch Lawrence of Arabia on an iPad. And um, I was going to say, like, you're, you think that's bad. I uh, was watching it on my, my big screen TV downstairs, and then I was like, oh, it's time for dinner. I'm going to go get dinner. And then I was ended up, I went to a ramen bar and I just sat there and watched it on my phone. With headphones. Oh, no, no. <laughs> to quote, to quote David Lynch, uh, yes. start for cursing on your fucking phone, <laughs> watch the movie on your phone. Such a sadness that you think you've seen a film on your fucking telephone. Get real. I still really enjoyed this movie. Uh, I want to talk a lot about uh, Lawrence's identity crisis, which I think is like the entire crux of the movie is his his uh, battle with his own identity. But um, uh, it, it's something that like I really enjoyed watching it at home. But it's something that I'm, I'm I know I would I would like more on the big screen. Uh, the comparison I can think of is 2001: Space Odyssey, which is one of my favorite movies, and I saw it I don't know half dozen times before I actually saw it in a theater. And seeing it in a theater, even though I'd already seen it half dozen times, like elevated a movie that was already one of my favorite movies and like i i couldn't i kind of couldn't believe how much more i liked it on a big screen i think this would be a similar experience because it's similarly visual visually grandiose so uh just i'll briefly say you know this is you know not i don't i don't want to say it's a perfect movie for me because it's not it but it but it is one of my favorite movies it's fantastic start to finish uh we've talked about the score and all that and i know matt you know, Matt does think this is basically a perfect movie, right? <laughs> Pretty damn near close, yeah. <laughs> so we don't need to bore you with our reasons. We like all of it. <laughs> uh, but uh, so I did want to touch on uh, one more thing here. Oh, yeah, here it is. What did you guys we, – we talked about David Lean. We, what, like, what do you know – what did you know about David Lean before watching this movie? I wanted to ask, what did you guys know about T.E. Lawrence 
before seeing this movie? Because for me, the answer was nothing. I knew nothing about T.E. Lawrence before watching this movie. Uh, nothing as well for me. Yeah, I, I think nothing except for the fact that he might have been gay. I think those are the only two things I know about him. And that's only because I, I've heard about that in reference to this movie before. In reference that, to the nothing. movie, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, I think uh, T. Lawrence was, was a character that, a character, a person, a historical figure that I had heard about in relation, like, in in school, He I, I remember him being mentioned in the sense, oh, there was the Arab revolt and this, this British soldier kind of participated to it and, you know, he... He became more famous because of the film that was made eventually about him. That that was the extent to it. Like, I had heard about him before I thought about the movie in relation to him, but I didn't really know anything about the story. Matt, what did you know about T.E. Lawrence? Yeah, I didn't know anything about him from a historical perspective. I knew about him... I actually wouldn't even say I knew that he was a real person before I saw this movie. Um, you know, I, I knew about the movie Lawrence of Arabia, but other than that, I don't think I really knew anything. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I think it's kind of interesting that this movie became such a phenomenon, given that the, the subject of the movie, you know, like, you know, I mean, he must've been more important then to like, people must've known about him back then. And in fact, Matt, you wanted to tell me, uh, how did he become like such a mythical figure? Yeah, he definitely was much more famous and well-known within Britain, apparently. Um, he, so basically, the character in the movie of Jackson Bentley, the reporter for the, I think he's for the Chicago Courier. Tribune or whatever. They said Courier. Yeah, Courier. Um, you know, there that was inspired by a real-life war correspondent that did follow uh, Lawrence around. His name was Lowell Thomas. And so basically, after the war, after World War One, Thomas did a traveling lecture series where he was going around and showing his photographs of the war, his stories and his experiences there. Um, and Lawrence was a huge part of that. I mean, he basically focused his entire travelogue series on Lawrence. Um, so he did this tour first in the U.S., didn't get a whole lot of traction with it and took it to Britain, and it just exploded in Britain. I mean, it, he became like one of the best shows in town, basically. And um, so with that, he actually then wrote his own biography of Lawrence based on his experiences with him. Um, and then, which also Lawrence then wrote his own biography, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. And then of course, as, um, well, I don't know if, the way that he passed on early in life, you know, it did kind of help to elevate his mythical status simply because it was a case of like, who is this guy, right? Like he, he's such a interesting figure overall. So I think to your point, Jeff, he was much more famous and well-known within Britain than in the U.S. Um, okay, so we've already talked about some of these things earlier, so I don't, we don't have to dwell too much on it, but what did you guys think of the performances in general you know, in this movie? Were there any standout performances for you? I think Omar Sharif is is so good in this movie. Um, I agree. I think, I think Omar Sharif is the best part of the movie. <laughs> yeah, he he stood out to me, um, especially the way that he goes from. He's a funny character. He's he has a sense of humor, and but he also has a strength to him. He can be angry. He can be distant. He goes through a whole different range of character traits, and I think he's he's the one that stood out to me the most because Peter O'Toole is a great performance it, but it's kind of a big performance is very uh, um theatrical um he he has to go through i don't know some i wouldn't i wouldn't call it overacting because it is it is very much it very much fits within the movie that they're 
doing, and especially for the 60s. But I think Omar Sharif, in, in terms of how I think he stacks up against a more modern performance, he's the one that stood out to me the most. Um, Alec Guinness, it, he's always great. It was fun. It was kind of funny for me, to be honest, sometimes, because I was like, oh, uh, Obi-Wan, what are you doing uh, with this uh, blackface? Um, but I didn't think he was bad. I didn't think he stood out in a negative sense. It's just like my attachment to Star Wars and that character kind of made it, there was this meta element to it that was kind of distracting sometimes. Um, and also I really like the portrayal of the, the British generals and the British officers are uh, every bit as, as posh and um, hate, like really annoying and dismissive of, uh, everything that isn't the interest of the British army. Um, they definitely have an air of superiority. They are very arrogant. <laughs> uh, I, I really like that part of the movie. As I said before, I, I was surprised by how uh, critical of uh, British military action uh, both this and Bajorokai uh, are. So I really like those portrayals. As they are a little, they do feel a little bit like caricatures, which is interesting because the Arabs in the movie don't feel like caricatures even though they're doing blackface and we talked about that, but they, but they are portrayed in a way that is at least intended for me to be accurate. Well, whereas the British uh, soldiers and the British um, officers are very much kind of, uh, oh, cheerio, uh, jolly, jolly good, uh, jolly good, good show, good sir. They're, they're very, very uh, caricatural of British people. Especially in Bishop of the Rakwai, they say at one point, he says, oh, jolly, jolly good, cheerio, jolly good show. And they say it in a very, it's this extremely high, yeah. like, uh, Queen's English accent that it, it doesn't really exist anymore. No one speaks like that anymore. But the way it is in the movie, it, it, it makes it funny. But it also, I think it does a really good job at showing their arrogance and their disdain for kind of everybody else. I really liked that portrayal. Yeah, the the one the one possible exception to the British officer caricature um, that I would say is uh, Anthony Quayle's portrayal of Brighton, Colonel Brighton. Um, that's the one who basically goes with him in the physically in the desert with him for most of the movie. And, and I think you know for most of the movie, what you said absolutely applies to him. But then at the very end of the movie, you see a switch in his character. You know, and he and he really starts to sympathize more with Lawrence than he does with the, the rest of the British officer class. Um, but I mean, people like Allenby, for example, perfect. And well, and even more so that the first general, Murray, you know, the, the but I must have artillery, right? Him, like <laughs> he's like the, the stereotype British general in that sense, for sure. In terms of performances for me, I, I agree that Omar Sharif is probably the standout, but I also really like Peter O'Toole's performance, particularly what he's doing with his voice. Um, he's so soft-spoken, and it's not like not what I was expecting from like this epic military hero in this epic movie. I was kind of expecting a, you know, a more masculine performance. To be perfectly honest, because he he kind of does not. Again, he's softer-spoken. He's got soft features, and like the fact that this character, this real-life person, may have been gay, they're kind of like suggesting it that with like his lack of masculine traits. Um, but I thought that was really interesting, and I, every time Peter O'Toole was on screen, I. Which is most of the movie. I was uh, engrossed. Also, you don't you don't have in the outline, but uh, Anthony Quinn I thought was really good too, as the uh, I can't remember his name. Uh, Auda, excuse Auda. me. Yes, uh, I thought he was great too. We're looking at it with hindsight, and so you know the you know the makeup that they put several of these actors in is not not good, but I the spirit of the characters I think is intended. It's good intentions with with those characters. 
And then, like we're saying, the, the, the funniest, the people who are being made fun of the most are actually the British. And, and I, I think that's brilliant. Okay. Favorite scenes. We're going into spoilers. Let's do this. Uh, I wanted to talk about what y'all's favorite scenes in the movie are. Uh, and then I wanted Matt to give us the fun facts about how those scenes were shot. Cause he, he's got a few of those. <laughs> if I can, if you can. can't do it with everything, but I'll do it where I can. So I'll start with Josh this time. Josh, did you have like a favorite scene in the movie? Um, I have more of a favorite sequence and maybe I can try to pinpoint a favorite scene within that sequence. But basically like the whole second half of part one, um, like that hour, hour and a half stretch from the time he first meets Faisal and Faisal's tent to basically the end of part one. Um, I'm really in and I think it's great. Uh, I kind of mentioned earlier that I think like the crux of the movie is Lawrence's identity crisis. And we get all of that here because when he first goes into Faisal's tent or before he's about to go into Faisal's tent, uh, I guess it's Brighton who's with him. Is that the right. character? Brighton. Yes. He tells him like, don't say anything, just get in, make your report and then leave. And while in the tent, Lawrence kind of ignores that order. And because he's asked directly by Faisal, what do you think? He gives him his thoughts. So at that moment, he's kind of caught between his obligations as a British officer and the orders he has there versus being asked this direct question from this Arab man. And so he chooses the Arab man in that sense. And um, kind of the rest of the movie is is Lawrence's personal identity crisis between his Britishness and, you know, being in the desert here. He kind of feels at home and, and maybe he belongs here instead. I mean, even even his name, Lawrence of Arabia, he, he reveals to Omar Sharif's character a few scenes later that he's a bastard and doesn't have his father's name. So then Omar Sharif tells him, well, you can choose your own name, basically. Uh, that's very meaningful in a movie about identity crisis then being identified as Lawrence of Arabia kind of is, is a play on that. And then later, uh, later in the same sequence, um, he's asked, are you not loyal to England? And he says to England and to other things, which I thought was a very interesting response. And, um, after he reveals to Ali that he's a bastard, the very next scene, he takes off his British uniform clothes and puts on the Harith robes, which I thought was again, very interesting. And then, uh, obviously, possibly my favorite scene, I guess, is when he takes his companion into the British Officers Club in his robes, all dirty, and everyone's looking at him. I think, I, again, I think that is kind of like the crux of the movie is their reaction to him and his, like, defiance of their reaction, basically. And he doesn't care. And, like, he like this is what he's wearing. This is how he looks. And this is who he's bringing with him into this world. And um, I think that's kind of the whole movie to me. Yeah. So that, that, I guess that's probably my favorite sequence. The, one of my favorite quotes is from that scene when they go into the officer's club. I know Matt loves this one as well, where they, they, they say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, sir, this is an officer's club. And uh, uh, Lawrence responds, that's okay, we're not particular. <laughs> or, or something <laughs> like that. Like, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, even, if... like, meaningfully, meaningfully in that sequence, like, his, his face is, like, sun-weathered and wind-weathered, so he he looks like he could be, you know, an Arab person himself. And they kind of do that later where he goes to a town trying to disguise himself as an Arab. I thought that was, again, meaningful. And, and gets away with it a lot longer than he should have. Because <laughs> he, he has extremely blue eyes. Yes. <laughs> Go ahead, Matt. I, I, want, I wanted to jump in here because I think what you said, Josh, about this part of the movie being like, for me, I agree. This is completely the most compelling part of this movie. The 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 maybe the last forty five minutes before the intermission, right? Um, especially that scene that you mentioned, where he comes back to the British officers' club after having just crossed the Sinai, which is the second desert that is supposedly uncrossable that he just crossed. You know, so um, 
I love that scene, especially the part where basically he starts to uh, talk to Allenby. This is his first time meeting Allenby, right? Who's now the new commanding general in the area. And he's telling Allenby what he's done. And Allenby is is definitely impressed with Lawrence, right? I mean, I think he, he sees, wow, this guy's very capable, capable. But more importantly, Allenby starts to realize this is somebody that I can use for my own benefit and for the benefit of the army and the empire, right? So he starts to then tell Lawrence, well, great, this is what you're going to do. I'm going to promote you. You're going to go back out to the desert. I'm going to give you guns, well, not tanks, but guns, armored cars, you know, all of these things, right? So in that moment, the way that it's shot, it's shot kind of on a top-down perspective of Lawrence sitting down. And you can tell, as Allenby is telling him all these things, you can tell that Lawrence is simultaneously loving the fact that he's being accepted for once by the British, British officer corps, but he's also terrified of what that means. You can, it's shot in a way that his facial expressions portray that he is just devastated, that he, he can tell that this means that he's now going to lose a lot of the independence he just had in the desert. He's now under the thumb of the British officer corps, even though you know he may seem like he's able to be independent. And it, I think it's so also so Ill, well illustrated in that scene where you know, Allenby calls in like the corporate or the corporal or the private who's outside and the guy comes in and, you know, you see him like rigidly stand up and go, Sha! <laughs> yeah. right? You know, Taps and it's foot. that. Yeah. And it just seems so ridiculous. Right. And but Lawrence, you can tell that he's just hating life because of the fact that he realizes, hey, I'm under this guy's control now. Well, what I, what I thought Lawrence was thinking about in that scene and like kind of he, he seems very preoccupied in that scene and. What he says to Allenby is that I, I killed two men. And like he's like horrified by that fact, including a guy that he had previously saved. He had to execute him to Which is, basically prevent a blood feud. That was my favorite uh, scene in the in, in the first half of the movie was – well, it, it's – I mean my favorite scenes in the movie are often the most tragic. I, I, I'll let you get back to it. But yeah, that one in particular where he had gone back into the desert to save this man against everyone t- telling him, no, you can't do that. You're definitely going to die only to have to then execute that man later is so freaking powerful. Keep going, Josh. Um, but he basically confesses to Allenby that I killed these two men and I, I kind of liked it and I don't know how to feel about it. And Allenby's like, good, or whatever. I don't even remember what Allenby says, but like, I, I wasn't really sure what to make of that. And and I guess no, that kind of... He says hum- something like, oh, you're just under the weather. You need, just need some rest. It'll be fine. Sure, yeah. Like but that, like, yeah. but um, Lawrence and his relationship to violence kind of evolves from that moment into the part two which i guess we can talk about a little bit later but i, I wasn't really sure what to make of lawrence's relationship to violence basically and, and which begins with that scene well the other person that he killed was his uh, a poor you know like an, an orphan you know uh one of his caretakers basically one of his caretakers that he had hired on and again this was you know the whole you know the whole movie is about uh lawrence's you know savior complex and when and those moments where it crashes down and he realizes he's not a prophet, he's not, you know, you know, truly a blessed person. And one of those moments is, is one of my, you know, again, favorite scenes in the movie. Uh, they're traveling through the desert, him and his two uh, caretakers, and one of them gets stuck in quicksand and they try to save him and they can't. And I, the reason I want to bring this up is because I wanted to ask, how did they sh- shoot that? Yeah, so um, basically what they did was they, well, they were in an area of the desert, obviously, but essentially they dug a hole and in, in the sand and they put like a rubber flap 
over the top of the sand, right? So they dug a hole big enough for two people to be down in the hole at once, you know, fully up above their head. And they put a rubber flap over the top of the sand and then just covered the rubber flap with a bunch of sand. So what they did was the prop uh, master essentially hid down in the hole. And so then when they got to where he was supposed to be sucked down into the quicksand, he essentially just grabbed his legs and slowly pulled him down into the hole where he was. So, you know, once they were finished shooting it, there were two people in the hole with him, right? The actor and the prop master. Yeah. Well, see, and that's a practical effect that is done brilliantly. Like, you know, I, I had no idea. <laughs> like, I would have assumed that they dug a hole that the sand would have just filled in the hole. Like well, it's because they it's because they had the rubber flap there that stopped this, all the sand. I mean, I'm sure a lot of it came in, you know. But Hugo, uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, for me, in terms of favorite favorite scenes, I I I think the journey that the character goes through be, from becoming from being this this kind of unassuming, uh, cheerful British guy who's kind of there, but he doesn't he doesn't really seem to be all that concern with the war when he's initially sent off into this journey. He's kind of in a good spirit. Oh, cool. I'm just going to get to go to on this fun journey through the desert. It might be fun. Yeah. It might yeah, be it fun. Might be fun. He, he, he seems yeah. just kind of uh, almost uninterested and, and not that concerned. And then, and he has definitely a distaste of violence and bloodshed throughout the whole movie. And by the end, he's kind of become this, this figure that he's taking on more, uh, power and more influence that than i think he initially wants but he also kind of likes it and he also also starts thinking of himself in that way and i think in this sense my favorite scenes are the contrast between um before he meets the arabs so particularly the scene at the well is one of my favorite scenes of the movie mm, both scene, just yeah. cinematically it's i think it's the most beautiful scene in the movie where they just stand there and one of the, they just stand there at opposite side of, of the shot. And then in the distance, you just see this speck of black and the camera just holds there. And this guy slowly comes close to them and he's in between them. And then he shoots the other guy and he's still just standing there and waiting for him. And that's where we meet. Uh, that was such a uh, shocking Sherry moment. <laughs> yeah. I was like, just, Oh, and and I think the contrast there and the comedy of it is like uh, 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 Lawrence is kind of horrified. Oh, you just killed my friend, my guide, who I was making friends with. And uh, Sheriff Ali is just kind of unassumingly saying, oh, uh, he's from another tribe. He's not allowed to drink in my well. And Lawrence is like, I also drank from your well, and but you are welcome. And he's just kind of cheerful, but he's also just killed a man. So it sets up that character perfectly. Um but the attitude that Lawrence has there is then, for me, contrasted where with the several scenes. And I think that it's the second part of the movie where he's kind of losing a, a lot of his battles, or at least he's losing a lot of the following that he has because it's becoming harder and harder to gain ground as he had at the beginning when the, people, when, you know, the Arabs are galvanized and they get Abaka, I think it's called. Akaba. Um, Akaba, sorry. Um, and he has several dialogue scenes with... Uh, Sheriff Ali, where Sheriff Ali kind of questions uh, Lawrence, why are you doing this? That we should, at this point, we don't have enough following to do this. Uh, you're kind of becoming this megalomaniac uh, who thinks he can do anything. And that scene in the cave, he's like, who will follow me to do this crazy thing that is basically impossible? And and he's, he's kind of, at that point, he's turned into that person who's convinced that he himself is able to do anything. He's believing in the changes- hype. 
Yeah, and he changes back uh, to, like, he kind of regains his head a little bit after he loses one of the, you know, what's his name? Um, one of the, the two young, uh, uh, um, Dowd is the one who dies. Yes, when he loses Dowd to the quicksand, he kind of, that grounds him back to reality, even though he does go back and fight again. But he, I think he, his attitude is a little different at that point. And he's kind of gone through some sort of psychotic moment. I think that the the scene where he goes back and talks to the general that, that Josh mentioned is a really interesting scene because like the general is kind of doesn't really understand at all what Lawrence is going through uh, psychologically. And he's horrified with himself, with the war. He's tired. He's been through all these desert crossings that uh, were supposed to be impossible um but at the same time he just has to go back and when he do- when he does get the order to go back suddenly he switches back and he's the messianic figure again and in the scene after so it, it's interesting to see the dichotomy that he has within himself and in the way that he acts uh, and how it changes continuously throughout the movie go ahead josh I wanted to mention that well scene for a couple of reasons that, that Hugo brought up. Number one, um, I've said that for me, the crux of the movie is Lawrence's identity. And in this scene, Sheriff Ali kills the other guy because he's a member of a different tribe, more or less. And Lawrence tells him, I, I, may, I may not have the exact quote, but he basically says, as long as the Arabs fight tribe against tribe or whatever, they'll continue to be a little people or, you know, again. Yeah, yeah the, sure. The, the quote quote. That I gave at the top of the show. <laughs> yes, and then uh, later when he's talking to uh, Auda for the first time, um, he says, "I didn't come here to watch a tribal bloodbath." And he also says, "I have no tribe," which is again getting to his identity. Um, but also at the uh, at the well scene, I think it's so interesting that like that's first of two times that someone is killed or threatened to be killed over using someone else's well, basically. And it's so interesting that like resources are so sparse in this part of the world that you know you can get killed for drinking from someone's well and then contrast that with like the british officers club in cairo which is opulent in this palace and just go up and order lemonade if you like and i think that's also a very interesting contrast yeah i wanted to talk a little bit about the well scene i mean i think that it's you know the well scene i think a lot of people would probably reference it as the mirage sequence right um it's it's so interesting how they filmed that. So basically, they knew that um, w- as so David Lean was notoriously uh, involved at pretty much every stage of all of his movies. He w- constantly was working with the writer, you know, and then um, obviously doing all the shooting. But then he was very hands on in the editing process for all of his movies as well because he had a background before he became a director as one of the best editors in the whole British film industry. So, um, but with the Mirage sequence. He had written it into the script that he wanted to film a mirage in the desert. And the way that he did that, basically, they decided that they were going to get an 800 millimeter lens to be able to film that scene. So if you look at pictures, it's like, you know, this is the size of the camp, whatever. This is the size of the camera. And then the lens sticks out like this. <laughs> it's just insane. And so, you know, they did that. They, they had Omar Sharif take the camel and ride way into the distance where they couldn't even see him anymore. And they also had some trucks out there. So if you look at the very beginning of that sequence, you see the black speck, but you also see a cloud of sand flying around, right? And and it's near him. And those are being caused mostly by the trucks that were literally just driving in circles, creating that sandstorm. And he comes in, they had actually painted a white strip um, out in on the sand 
out to where he is so that it draws your eye out to wherever that is, right? So it's, I love that shot. I love that sequence. And it's funny in interviews, David Lean has even said like, you know, during the editing process of the movie, I had even wanted to make that scene, that the filming and how long we stay on that mirage almost twice as long. And in David, <laughs> and in David Lean's estimation, he says, and it was better, but I lost my nerve and I cut it. <laughs> That's a that's a good segue into the Roger Ebert quote that I mentioned earlier that I wanted to say, which is that um, just about the conception of Lawrence Arabia as a whole, uh, to quote Ebert, the impulse to make this movie was based above all on imagination. The story of Lawrence is not founded on violent battle scenes or cheap melodrama, but David Lean's ability to imagine what it would look like to see a speck appear on the horizon of the desert and slowly grow into human being. He had to know how that would feel before he could convince himself that the project had a chance of being successful, which is exactly that. It's just like, you know, you just kind of mentioned it. That this movie is really good at putting your eye where it wants you to put your eye. You know, in these grand vistas, it knows exactly where you're going to be looking because it, it kind of subtly tells you where to be looking. And um, I think this the speck of Omer Sharif out in the distance is a perfect example of that. Yeah. And, and like we said earlier, this isn't even the only time in the movie that they do the tiny speck in the distance. And, and like you said, Josh, it, they they it's almost magic how they all they force you to look exactly where they want you to look. Mm-hmm. It. it uh, baffling cinema baffling cinema and th- this i mean that, i'm glad you actually say the word cinema here josh because now when i think about what makes a movie cinematic this is the movie i think about because the, it's done it's executed so brilliantly that like you know bet- between the score and the visuals and the performances all of it is so grandiose but also magically personal to me it, it, oh god i just i love yeah. i love it so much I mean, I, I think that, like, I don't want to belittle the story, but I think the story is kind of secondary to the visuals and the music and the editing and everything that you just mentioned. Like, you're right. And that's, again, a reason why I wish I could have seen this on a bigger screen. Hopefully I will one day see this on a bigger screen. It's like, that is kind of the the experience of the movie. Like, I think Ebert says later in his review that, like, if you ask people about the movie, they're not going to tell you about the plot or the characters. They're going to tell you about, like, what it felt like to watch it and, like, you can, you know, feel the heat basically as you're watching it and feel the music. And like, that's, that's the takeaway from the movie. I mean, just look at the way I wanted to talk about this movie. I didn't want to go plot point by plot yeah. point because that's not to me what the most important aspect of the movie is. It's important. It's a very, I, I do think it's a cool story. And I think like Hugo was talking about Lawrence's cycle between I'm a normal guy. I'm a normal guy. I'm a God. I'm a God among I'm a men. God. I'm the best. Oh no, I'm not a God. I'm a horrible person. I've done some terrible things and I should be embarrassed about everything, but they still need me. And that makes me a God again. And, and he just goes through this, you know, you know, uh, sign pattern, you know, <laughs> it's a, uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, Trigonometry. <laughs> and it's like, so I do think it's cool. And I do think the performances are great. Uh, but, it's it's literally the actual making of the movie to me that elevates this to its status and it's like like talking about epics in general you know i'm a big fan of epics and that it becomes more and more clear to me when i look at you know how much i like david lean and how much i like steven spielberg and you know <laughs> and like you can follow that trajectory it's like oh i just really like this kind of movie uh, but yeah so lawrence of arabia fantastic movie I, I truly adore it. Uh, and now it is time to add it to our rankings. Uh, so uh, uh, I believe Matt and I talked. Matt doesn't want to participate in our rankings either. Uh, not because he doesn't like that we do them, but because <laughs> he, like, you know, he hasn't been involved in the other voting. 
So, I feel like it's not fair. It's not that I don't want to. I just don't feel like <laughs> I should. Just, uh, I think he should have an opinion, but not a vote. Agreed. That's, that's I'd like to we, hear. We, we, we okay, okay. When there's a guest. Um, I mean, there's a reason you're having me on for this episode and for this movie. It, I would put it at number one. <laughs> fair enough. This is this is why I don't get a vote. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'll, we'll go ahead and start with Josh. Where, where are you thinking on our film? Uh, uh, I guess I should read the top 10. Our top 10 currently, number 10, The Departed. Number 9, Your Name. Number 8, The Thing. Number 7, Bicycle Thieves. Number 6, Chinatown. Number 5, Network. 4, Boogie Nights. 3, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. 2, Citizen Kane. And number 1 currently, The Silence of the Lambs. Josh, where do you um, have it? Yeah, this is this is tough, man. That, that's a That's a dense top of the list um of movies that are either among my favorites of all time or among the best movies of all time or a combination therein um so it's it's hard to crack this top eight basically um i I think i'm gonna put it at seven below chinatown ahead of bicycle thieves so i'm putting it behind sansa lamb sissy can ferris bios day off boogie nights network in chinatown again that's just a hard six to crack into. sure and considering i've only seen this movie once and i've seen each of those movies you know way more than that for now i can't really rank it above those which i apologize for because i'm sure that some people would including matt would not <laughs> agree with that but yeah well, i got it i got it at seven listening to previous episodes as i do josh i would say that uh knowing how much you love some of those movies that is a definitely a respectable spot on your list sure, for man. sure i mean i i i love chinatown unlike most movies so the fact that it's right below chinatown i think is it speaks highly of lawrence arabia well so I don't know what Hugo's going to do, but just in case, I want to say where I would put mine first, because I imagine Hugo's is going to be lower than uh, that. Actually, I have it below Rudy, so... Uh... You are you are straight up lying to me right now. <laughs> of course. <laughs> There's no way Hugo put it below Rudy. Rudy, Rudy. I was, I was, I was Rudy. about to get up and walk away. <laughs> uh, for me, I would probably put this... Uh, I would probably put it uh, just below Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, mm. I, I, I certainly, I, I would put it above Boogie Nights, uh, and it, on my personal list, when we redo the rankings and, and all that later, it'll probably be a, a higher still, but, uh, that's where I would put it. Hugo, what are you thinking? I, I think I'm right around, uh, number seven as well. Okay. And just because again, as I think me, both me and Josh said, it's, it's, it's a lot to take in, especially seen not on a big, big screen and, uh, at home where you, you know it's it's hard to just sit there and, and just watch it straight through and be immersed in it without a distraction or taking a break like i watched the two parts separately to be completely honest because i didn't i didn't have time i, I was <laughs> i got sleepy in the first part so i watched the second part i watched this over like six sittings by the way not just two parts <laughs> like i watched this very episodically like, yes exactly so and i do feel like as i said uh re-watches will make me appreciate the more uh personal side and more psychological side of the story a bit more um as a cinematic achievement this is possibly the one of the best movies where we have on our list uh maybe even the best just just on, in terms of visual and and the filmmaking and the music and the way the editing and the way the film is put together uh but i do have also want to consider how i feel about the story and the characters so in that sense mm-hmm. i think i would also go Around number seven, yeah, below Chinatown, I think. Is I feel like Josh is about to hit me. Real, I'm quick. not going to hit you. I'm just going to say that uh, 
I, I too, like, like I'm tempted to put this around where you're putting it, like Blow Ferris Bueller, which the difference is uh, Boogie Nights Network and Chinatown. Those are the movies separating where I currently have it and where Grizz has it. But, like, I, I can envision a world where I watch this a few more times and it climbs to about that ranking. It passes Chinatown Network and, and uh, Boogie Nights. But, like, I, I can't rank it based on what I think I'll eventually think of the movie. I can only sure. rank it based on what I think of it right now. And after one viewing... It's impossible for this to be ahead of Network Chinatown or Boogie Nights after after one viewing, considering how many times I've seen those movies. So I thought you were I going apologize. to I thought you were going to criticize me for not having it above like Ferris Bueller's, like you know, no, because not, because I'm talking about Absolutely how this not. is the movie I think of when I think of cinema, no, 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 no. and I mean it is, but like Ferris Bueller's a lot put, more fun. <laughs> put respect on Ferris Bueller's name. I mean, we do. It's like number three. <laughs> number three yeah, so it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually. Scratch that. I'm um, just looking at the list. I, 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 this kind of did have more of an impression upon a first word watch than Chinatown did. I'm sorry, Josh. I'm just Go to hell. That's again. fine. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll put it below network. <laughs> okay, well, so then that, that's where it's going to fall for now. Uh, number six, or uh, number 10 is now your name. Number nine, The Thing. Number eight, Bicycle Thieves. Number seven, Chinatown. Number six, Lawrence of Arabia. Number five, Network. Four, Boogie Nights. Three, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Two, Citizen Kane. And number one, still, The Silence of the Lambs. Great movie. (laughs) Reigning champ. Uh, Okay, well, real quick, uh, let's talk about, you know, what we got going on in our lives. Encourage people to follow us uh, on Twitter at RTF underscore pod. Uh, You can also follow me on Twitter at GoodGameGrizz. And, uh, you know, I, I recently joined the cast of hosts on another show called uh, The Week in Pop, which is a pop culture uh, you know, show talking about a variety of stuff. That's over on Pop XP on YouTube. Only listen to that after you've listened to every episode of Remember the Film. Then and only then can you listen to the other podcasts we're promoting here. <laughs> to be fair, they've already uh, promoted Remember the Film on their Twitter have, because yes. they, they, they listened to an episode yes. and they liked it. <laughs> uh, Hugo, where can people follow you? Uh, you can follow me at, at Hugo underscore Pinai on Twitter. But again, as I said last week, uh, my Twitter, especially right now, is all politics. So follow me on Letterboxd. Uh, you can find me at Hugo Pinai, I think. I don't even remember what my name is. But uh, I use Letterboxd a lot. And it's it's a fun... It, I think it's a fun fun Letterboxd to follow. Josh? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Brosh Jadley. And I'm on YouTube. Moves I love. And so can you. And Matt? I don't have a big podcast to promote, so if you want to follow my Twitter, that's great. At Matthew E. Curran or on Letterboxd, M.E. Curran. Yeah. Uh, so next week. Uh, the trailer for Last Night in Soho just came out uh, earlier this week. So we thought. It looks so good, dude. It looks amazing. Yeah. It looks amazing. That'll be, that'll be a good one. Uh, very excited. Uh, because of that, we're going to be talking Edgar Wright. We're talking about Edgar Wright, and our film to remember will be Shaun of the Dead. So his. Well, it's not his first movie, but his first major movie. Well, and this is important because you know we we've been we've done a lot of Josh's favorite movies. We've done a lot of my favorite movies. Yeah, uh, Shaun of the Dead is one of Hugo's absolute favorite movies. Shaun of the Dead, great, is, great is, movie, is a, like a top five movie of all time for my personal taste. It's my favorite comedy of all time. I I love that movie. Uh, so we'll see where it ranks. I'm not big on zombie movies, and that is the one zombie movie that I'm like, man, this is an awesome uh, movie. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk Zombieland. about it. We'll Thank talk about you. it next week. But yeah, so <laughs> fine. that's it's what we're doing next week. Please join us. Uh, remember to follow or uh, subscribe. Uh, if you're listening to the audio format, I appreciate that. Uh, but please leave a review on whatever podcast service you're on. We'd, we'd love to hear your thoughts. 
And of course, again, tweet us at RTF underscore pod with any questions or anything like that. We'd love to hear more from you. Uh, So until next time, thank you guys for joining us. Bye.